to have a, an insight that the church needs to hear. And that usually is termed a prophetic word in the Bible. Now, this morning, the word that was given to us prophetically was also shared in the first service. We asked that it be shared again in the second service because it was it's not a word that was specific to an individual in a service. It was a word that was general to the church and where we are. And in a moment, when I share from uh, what the Lord's given me to share, you're going to see an amazing similarity of what was shared in the prophetic word and what is going to be shared in the prophetic or in the preaching of the word. Uh, let me just tell you right off the bat, those two things have not been coordinated. There's no there's no human coordination here this morning. There's going to be such severe overlap. You're going to think that that word was scripted out of the message. It was not. Um, from what I understand, actually, the Lord had, had begun to give a word to Darlene last week. Uh, to share, and um, you know, you guys, we don't always know where we're going on Sunday, so I know you don't. As a matter of fact, Peter was supposed to preach this morning a message in a completely different direction in the series that we're doing. And during the week, I just called him and said, "You know what, bro? Uh, the Lord's giving me something for Sunday. We're going to push your word off a couple of weeks, and so we're going to end up where we're going to end up this morning." But God knew all that, and so I share that with you just so you know that there's a supernatural God in our midst who is specific in wanting to, to speak some things to us. Um, now, for the sake of just kind of helping to create some flow here, let, let me go ahead and do the announcements right now. Uh, I just want to highlight the fact that we're stopping worship because I want to jump into the Word as quickly as possible here. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and do announcements and ask the ushers if they go ahead and come forward right now. And we're going to receive the offering so that we don't have any further uh, distracting elements for the service and we can minister and follow the continuing... A little series of messages that we felt led to spend some time in, and we'll be doing so in the next few weeks, that have to do with restoration in the church. That, that God, God has, from the beginning, had a desire about what His church was supposed to be. And there's a reality that we live in a world that drifts away from that purpose. And, and we need to be mindful that we need to intentionally come back to that purpose. Some of us uh, are coming back to the purpose of our own lives, of, of why are we created? Why do we exist? Why do you draw breath in your life? Well, you know, if you subscribe to all the ideas that are available out there in the world, you'll come up with hundreds of reasons why people exist. And whether it's for personal relationships career advancement, material possessions, uh, reaching some status in life, being successful or prosperous. You know, whatever the thing is, we're trying to fill in that purpose. And that's what man is running full speed into. If you live in this country, that's what personal existence is about. It's about personal comfort. It's about acquiring things. It's about becoming somebody, whether it's a great athlete or a, a movie person or uh, musician, you know, that's what our country touts as why people exist. But God is first interested in restoring us to himself. There is a God who created us. And he's at the very centerpiece of why any of us are drawing breath. Why we exist is about him. And then we find out when we get saved, there's this thing called the church. In our country, and really I guess for many folks, the church exists on the periphery. It's that thing that's on the edge of people's lives. That when you get saved, it becomes something that becomes part of your life. 
But when we look in the Bible, we find out there's a different purpose in God. That the, the church is the very centerpiece of what God is doing upon the earth. If you want to find where God's at and what He's doing today, it's the church. Now, I know that there's some sporadic elements of activity that individuals may be doing. But uh, those folks sometimes are missing the main picture. The main picture of God is, is located in the church. But the church today has many forms, many varieties, many expressions. Some of them not all that healthy. Some of them not what God intended them to be in the first place. And so there is a need for restoration, a need for us to come back from where we've drifted from and get back to where God wants us to be. And, you know, you and I can, can see this in natural elements in our life. Uh, I was reminded, thinking about this this week, uh, when I grew up, I, I grew up here in New Orleans and uh, my, my dad loved to fish and so we fished every weekend just about down in uh, South Louisiana out towards the Gulf and in that area where now it's famous for coastal erosion, you know, when you hear a lot of storms and stuff, coastal erosion things. Uh, well, we fished a lot. And when you were down there fishing, you didn't kind of notice coastal erosion. It, it takes you a little while to notice it. So, you know, I had a, gotten busy in my older years and kind of didn't go down as much. But then you go back 10, 20, 30 years later to where you used to fish, and it's just not the same anymore. You know, what once was uh, grassy marsh areas is just open water now, just a complete change. But, you know, if I was moving here today to Louisiana, and, and I didn't know anything about Louisiana coastline. So I was going to grab my first definition of Louisiana coastline by going out in the boat, getting out there on a fishing trip, say, tomorrow. Uh, I'd have a picture of something that I would call the Louisiana coastline. That would be very different than somebody who was there 40 years ago, wouldn't I? Things have changed. Storms have come. Wave action has eroded. Now, I don't necessarily know that because I'm starting from today. But if I've got some history, I'm going to see that, wow, what a difference. Because now we'll go down there and look around and go, man, do you remember when it was like this? Well, you know, there's, there's an effect like that that takes place in the church. There, there's an erosion of truth. There's an erosion of practice that takes place through the years in the church. And... When one looks at what the church was years ago, and one looks at what the church is now, there's this erosion that's taken place to where some of the things that were more prominent then, they're just not in the landscape anymore. It's like the, the wave action of living life and people's thoughts, uh, leaders in the church and movements and ideas have come and settled in the church. And when you and I get saved and we come into this thing called the church... It's like popping up in Louisiana today and going out in the coastline and checking it out and thinking, wow, look at the church. But what we really need to do is, is go back and find a point of restoration. Where, where would we go back to to find out what is the church really supposed to look like? What am I supposed to expect the church is really like? And if we're going to do that, then obviously we want to be true to Scripture. We want to go back to the Word. And what we're going to do in proceeding and looking at thoughts on restoration is, uh, in this topic today as well as in the ones in the future, is we're going to go back, if you will, and, and open up the old family photo album. Right? You ever, ever go back and look at old snapshots of yourself? You know, um, speaking of erosion, <laughs> uh, 
There's some of us here who can talk about hairline erosion. <laughs> it's taking place. And you go back, you open up that old picture of you 20, 30 years ago, and you go, wow, I, I had a lot of hair then. <laughs> uh, well, some folks have undergone erosion. There's some people who have undergone expansion. You know, it's a little different thing that's happened. You know, either you're losing it on the top or you're gaining it on the bottom. But somewhere along the line there, that describes everybody. Uh, but when we go back and we look, we open up the, the family photo album here and we look at the church and we see from the snapshots of what the church was in the book of Acts, where we have an intentional recording by God to give us an idea, not just about theology and doctrine, but about what does it look like when doctrine takes form, when it takes shape, when it shows up. After we wake up in the morning and we engage people and we try to do ministry and we live our lives a certain way. What what does all this doctrinal stuff mean? Well, there's snapshots for us. We can read through the book of Acts. It's like pictures are there for us. And if we took snapshots today of the church as it exists in some of these categories that we're going to do over the next few weeks and compared them side by side, you know. In some ways, we find the church is much fatter today than it was then, but not much healthier than it was then. In some ways, we find erosion. There's some real receding going on in the church today. What was once common activity and practice is you can't find it today. And we need to wise up. I believe if God wants to do a work of restoration, you and I need to acknowledge that truth exists in our lives. That we find ourselves in a certain condition. We can't let the condition of today determine for us what is a church supposed to look like. Because we're drawing from a a very eroded environment. And we create our own traditions. And we create our own expectations. But when one compares the church in the first century with today, there, there seems to be a major gap. And even the best churches out there, there's a major discrepancy between those two pictures. In your outline there, Gordon Fee comments about why he thinks that discrepancy exists. He says, the bottom line is the generally ineffective witness and perceived irrelevancy of the church in Western culture. Here, it seems to me, is where the real difference between Paul and us emerges. Where in a culture similar to ours, the early believers seem to have been more effective than we are. I am convinced this is due in large part to their experience of the reality of the Spirit's presence. The Spirit, as an experienced reality, was for Paul and his churches the key player in all of Christian life from beginning to end. The Spirit covered the whole waterfront. Power for life. Growth. Fruit. Gifts. Prayer. Witness and everything else. The Spirit was the key player. And, and I, I think there's something that's happened in our modern setting to where the, the, Spirit, the Spirit's still on the scene. But I, I don't know that He's a key player. And the fruit of that is weakness in all these areas. Power for life. Growth. Today, we've reassigned our expectation about growth. Today, people come into the kingdom of God and they, they get saved. They learn to speak the language. Some very loud, obnoxious things in their life sinfully are touched immediately. And then after that, they almost settle into certain character dynamics that will never go away. 
They'll actually become predominant things about that person. I mean, yeah, I won't ask you to do this, but I'm, I'm sure if you think through Christians that you know, there's a dominant feature on the landscape of their life. When you look at their life, this is known about them. And that thing tends to just not get changed and molded and reshaped. It just stays with them for years and years and years. And see, when you exist in that for long enough, you start thinking that's what Christianity, that's what transformation in Christianity is like. Rather than maybe drawing from a different reference point, where Christianity's transformation should be much more radical than what we're seeing. Much more effective. Growth should be much more effective. People who come into the kingdom today, they're thin in their understandings, thin in their theology, thin in their practice, and growth is hard to find. People tend to struggle in some of the same areas. I had a, a long conversation with one of the covenant group leaders this week. Talking about dealing with the challenges that come up in, in settings where relationships begin to be formed and there begins to be problems in relationships. And what was amazing as we talked was all the problems go back to the fundamentals. Right? When you come into Christianity, you come into a relationship with God where our sins have been forgiven. Okay, we all got that, right? What is it then about fragmented relationships that exist in the body of Christ that seem to lack forgiveness? Yeah, this, is, this is fundamental. You know, this is not real deep stuff. If you got your nose out of joint about somebody else in the body of Christ, you know, you put off, they've, you know, oh, I can't believe in them. There's a fracture and then there's gossip. And what, what is that? It's a fundamental problem. You are not walking in forgiveness. The very thing you received, you're not giving away. So, you know, you know, I'm all for books. I read a lot of books. And I, I get insight from folks and we promote thoughts to people to read things. But, you know, we can, we can create a, a covenant group manual that looks like a phone book, you know, about how to do all this and make it real complicated. But, you know, when, it, when relationships fragment and fall apart, it goes right back to fundamentals. You're going to find out there's a lack of humility. There's a lack of forgiveness. It's just real simple stuff. But people kind of don't grow past that. So you get churches that have just got fragments in it. People who stay for a little while go somewhere else because they don't like this or that or this person or that person. And So there's a lack of growth here in the body of Christ today. There's a lack of fruit of the Spirit. There's a lack of gifts of the Spirit. My goodness. Where are the gifts of the Spirit? Where are they? Where is prayer in the body of Christ? See, these are things needing restoration. We, we, we can't just settle into, yeah, well, you know, but there's, there's other stuff that's pretty good. Well, there is other stuff that's pretty good. But it doesn't dismiss us from whether we're missing the mark in, in serious and significant categories. You know, I remember, and some of you have been in Christianity long enough to remember this. There was a heated battle, 60s and 70s in particular, moving into the 80s as well, of charismatic activity in the body of Christ. You know, it's like a polarizing thing. It's like you were, you were either charismatic or you were not. And if you were not, you thought those people who were, huh, doctrines of demons. I mean, just all kinds of stuff floated out, accusations, and, and it was just this big radical departure line that was there. You know, today, there's still books being written about some of that stuff, but I've got to tell you, today, it's, it's not quite that way. And I'm not sure it's a good thing. Today, I'm not sure that that was a good thing either, don't get me wrong. But today, you know, I, I saw a book the other day 
is written by a person who is charismatic, being endorsed by a guy who's not just not charismatic, he is anti-charismatic. He has written books that have, have not served the church well in terms of the pursuit of spiritual gifts. And yet he's endorsing a guy who is charismatic. It's like, you're, what happened here? Which I know I'm fine for that, but I think what's happened through the years is charismatics taken on some kind of a dimension that it's kind of acceptable, it's kind of blended into some things. You know, you go to a charismatic church. Well, uh, yeah. How do you know that? Well, because of the style of music. Right? And now most people think, I go to a charismatic church because the music's got beat. People clap in my church. Some of them even dance. That's not charismatic. That's somebody dancing, which is great. You should. I think you should be excited about God. That's not charismatic. You know, it, it's not a charismatic church because it doesn't follow a liturgy. You, know, you come in, stand up, sit down, read something. Stand up, sit down, read something else. Repeat something back to us. Let's have a reading. Let's have a 14-minute uh, talk. Let's close in prayer this way. Okay. Everything was scripted. You know, well, we go to a church where... We don't follow script. Well, every church follows the script, but you know we can, we're free to disrupt ours. You know, like our services here spill over into stuff, right? It messes up school of the word, and you know, wow, we're charismatic. Well, how do you know? Because sometimes school of the word can't even happen. <laughs> uh, okay, you know, I, I'm not sure what photographs we're looking at to arrive at the idea that that's what charismatic is. There, there is a need today for restoration. In this category. And so I titled today, Restoring Dependence on the Holy Spirit. Just restoring Dependence on the Holy Spirit. Turn to Acts chapter 1. I use that word dependence because that's how the Bible seems to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That we are to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. When you get to the book of Acts, if you study much of the Bible, if you're not familiar with the Bible, let me just take real quickly. The book of Acts is the recording of, of just after Jesus has been crucified. The book of Acts begins to, uh, a historical view is, is putting, being put together about what happened to the followers of Christ after his crucifixion. And so it's commonly, the book of Acts is a shortened version of the Acts of the Apostles. So it's following the historical steps of the church just as it's taking off. Jesus has been crucified, uh, he's been resurrected, and now the church is beginning to take shape. And so we're going to follow the first few decades of the church's existence as this book is unfolding. Now, it's referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. I think, and I would agree with some commentators who would say, you could really call this book the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because more than the apostles, you know, players come and go. You've got some major players, and Peter in the beginning, the synod in Jerusalem, and then it moves to Antioch, and Paul comes more into the frame there. So you do have apostolic ministry, but the focal point is the ministry of the Holy Spirit through a variety of believers throughout the book. And you start picking that up immediately. Let's read a few verses here, right? In Acts chapter 1. And remember, Acts is a book that's written by Luke, who also writes the Gospel of Luke. So Luke's already compiled the historic view, the Gospel account of Jesus' life. Now he's compiling the next uh, 
segment of this historical view about the church. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, let me just stop here. We're, we're not far out of the gate here when all of a sudden there will be these subtle inferences about the Holy Spirit. He's going to be mentioned 57 times in the book of Acts. Uh, Jesus doesn't get mentioned too many more times than the Holy Spirit does in the book of Acts. Now, interesting, the book of Acts almost serves as a commentary on the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's been active all throughout the history of humanity. But we don't always get educated as to how he was. He was involved you know, with David. David was doing things. But we find out in the book of Acts, like Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit gets mentioned specifically in the ministry of David. So we, when we read the commentary of Acts on the Holy Spirit's activity, we find out, ah, David. David was charismatic. Huh. We find that there's, a, there's an activity of the Spirit in his life. It wasn't just David pulling off some stuff. Uh, Jesus, the Son of God, certainly he didn't need any assistance. He's the Son of God. But yet he is anointed with the Holy Spirit. And he's functioning in ministry by the Holy Spirit. And Luke begins to just kind of pop these little thoughts in here. Right? After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit. So even the Son of God was ministering by the Holy Spirit in what he did. And so when we get here, we're just going to read the first eight verses here of, of Acts. And the Holy Spirit's going to be mentioned three times. And interesting, here's where Luke starts. Here's his starting place. But we're going to look in a moment. It was also where he finished off. In his account of Luke, he is drawing our attention to the critical ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's continue. Verse three. To them, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, I want you to just notice something here. It's just, what's the main point in the beginning book of the book of Acts? The main point is the Holy Spirit. When Luke begins to write this account, his focus is determined on the Holy Spirit. So much so that he's referencing Jesus saying, wait in Jerusalem, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then it's like the, the apostles try and bring up another subject here. And Luke records going right back to the main point. And that's what the whole first couple of chapters of Acts are about, the establishment of the Holy Spirit's ministry. Right, so they ask him, is it now, is it time to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, back to the point. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, we see the Great Commission in here. You're going to be witnesses. But do we see the very centerpiece of being able to be those witnesses is centered on an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the beginning of Acts. Go back into Luke, 
the last chapter of Luke, the last few lines in Luke. Luke 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. All right, now we've got marching orders here. We've got a game plan. Here's what's about to happen. This is the gospel enterprise being explained. But there again is a pause. There was a gospel enterprise mentioned. You're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, to the uttermost parts of the world. Acts chapter 1. But there's a pause here. There's a pause here in Luke as well. Verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. You stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Same presentation here. In the Luke's, there's a highlighting of an event that's going to be take place. And the two words that characterize this event are that upon dynamic, I'm sending the Spirit upon you for the purpose of power. Upon you for the purpose of power. We go back to Acts chapter 1. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Same word construction, same ideas that are present here. Now let me just pull these two words out for a minute. That, that word upon, it's a little short word uh, in the Greek, epi. And, and it means to a continuance, for something to rest on or have influence upon or over any person or thing. So the Holy Spirit's going to come in a resting, coming upon dynamic that's going to bring influence, that's going to continue. But, but why would you do that? What's up with that? I mean, before we just let these ideas exist in the Bible, is there a reason for that? Well, it's interesting how this same word is used concerning the Spirit elsewhere. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 it says, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him, upon him. That's the same word, epi. Matthew chapter 12, verse 18, speaking of Jesus, says, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit, epi, upon him, and he shall... Proclaim justice to the Gentiles. I'm going to do something, then he's going to do something. I'm going to do something to him, and then he's going to be able to do something. That's what's in this context. And you see it in other places. Luke chapter 2. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now look what happened because of that. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. Here's a guy who's looking for the Messiah with an urgency and an insistence in his heart, constantly with his face directed towards the temple to encounter the Messiah when he comes. Why is he doing that? What's in him that's enabling him to be able to pull that off? 
Well, the Spirit is upon him, therefore he is doing something. The Spirit was upon Jesus, therefore he is doing something. When we see this little word upon and the way in which the Spirit comes, immediately there's a, there's a context of activity. This dynamic of the Spirit is about activity. And I'm going to differentiate that in just a moment from other activities of the Spirit. But let's just draw our attention to the activity. J. Rodman Williams says, It is evident that the Spirit of God is largely depicted as the Spirit of enablement. He's the Spirit giving abilities to us. The Spirit's activity was that of endowing an artisan, a judge, a king, a prophet, or a priest, to perform certain functions or tasks. Whatever the individual's natural abilities and capacities, the endowment of the Spirit is shown to be something additional, hence supernatural. And it is by virtue of this special endowment that the person involved was enabled to fulfill a certain task or vocation. So there's, there's an upon ministry of the Holy Spirit that should affect how you and I are living our lives. What is it that we're trying to do in our life to further the kingdom of God? You know, some of us are, we're old enough to where we're, we're familiar with who we are, right? At some point in your life, very early on, you figure out whether you're right-handed or left-handed, right? And when you figure out you're right-handed, you stop doing things left-handed. And you don't, really, you don't remember this. I mean, my kids, some of them are little and they're still in ambidextrous thing going on, but you know they kind of look like a retard when they do one of these things with that hand. Ah, you can tell which one's going to dominate. Eventually you stop doing things with this hand. You just do it all with this hand. You know, we kind of live in these patterns to where we've figured out, I can do this and I can't do that. And I can do that, but I can't do that. And, and so we take all of our natural abilities and, some, and God-given should be used for His glory. And we use them, but sometimes they become a box that we live within. And even though we're charismatic, we don't stop and realize there is an empowerment of the Spirit coming upon us that gives us an ability to operate outside the box. Well, I've never done that. I don't know if I could do that. Exactly the case. You might need to be empowered to do that. You might not have the ability to do it the way God wants, with the power God wants, with the effectiveness God wants. But see, we can be charismatic and live within our little familiar place. And not venture outside of that. Not step out in faith. Not believe that, you know, the Spirit is upon me for a, a dynamic purpose. To bring to me supernatural abilities that exceed what I could bring in that moment. That God would use me in a way that would exceed my abilities. You know, if we're really charismatic, then we're, we're pushing out the box quite often. Because we know the Spirit's upon me. Spirit fills me for a purpose that's beyond my own abilities. Now, that's upon. What about this power dynamic? Now, this is a very interesting thing here. As you look in, in, in Luke, uh, let me distinguish something here about power. The Spirit, you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. That's the promise in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Now, what's interesting is the context and the timing of that statement. Um, Let's go back to where Luke 24 and another passage in John chapter 20 occur. They occur on the same evening. This is Sunday evening. This is after the resurrection. It's the first day of the week. Jesus has traveled the road to Emmaus with some disciples. Remember, these guys walk with Jesus. And Jesus has expounded the scriptures to them. Eventually, they get a revelation. This is the Lord. We've been with the Lord all this time. 
And then they go running back to Jerusalem. Later that evening, Jesus shows up in the room with the other disciples. And they begin to have an exchange. And at some point in the evening, what's described in Luke chapter 24 takes place. Jesus begins to explain to them about the prophets and the Psalms and the Moses. And it says he opened their minds to understand the scripture. So this must have been quite a Bible study. I mean, these guys were just having lights go off left and right. Passages in the Old Testament that they had read many, many times are all of a sudden becoming clear. It's like, you know, you can look around the room. They're doing that V8 thing with each other. Oh, that's what that, that was about you all the time. Oh, this is going on the whole night. So these guys are grasping scripture because Jesus has opened them to the word. That's really what's, what's occurred. And then at, at another point in the evening, John chapter 20 tells us that Jesus uh, looked at them and he says he, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So there, there has been some kind of an impartation of the Holy Spirit in this meeting on Sunday night. And then he goes on and says what we read here in Luke chapter 24. Don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for what the Father promised. For when you receive, or when the Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power. But wait, 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 wait. Well, what's just happened here? They've received insight and revelation. These guys could explain the Scriptures, couldn't they? They could have walked out of that meeting with Jesus and gone to all the Jews and opened the Bible up and said, this is about Christ, this is about Christ, this is about Christ, this is about Christ. I just talked to him. Trust me, I'm right on in this. And they had something of the Holy Spirit in them. Receive the Holy Spirit. It's the same Greek word that's used in the uh, Greek Septuagint from the Old Testament in Genesis. Where the Bible says God formed man and he breathed life into him. Same word. Receive the Holy Spirit. So something of the Spirit has been given to these men. And revelation has been giving to them. But yet Jesus is saying, you're not ready to go just yet. You need the Spirit to come upon you. Now, I think there's some uniqueness to whatever that description is, because when we visit it in the book of Acts, you're going to find that there's that, an upon, falling upon, coming upon dynamic that's distinct. And even the apostles recognize it's distinct, as we look through some uh, record in, in the book of Acts. And the Holy Spirit's given in our lives to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Right? That's an effect of the Holy Spirit's ministry upon anybody. You don't have to be a believer. You can be an atheist. You can be a God-hater. And the Holy Spirit can come convict you concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, would any of us equate that activity with being filled with the Spirit? Would we say that a man who's walking on the street gets convicted of his sin? We'd get that guy right there, filled with the Spirit. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Would any of us say that? I don't think we would. I think what we'd say is the guy's being convicted by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and what seems to also be clear is a regenerative work of the Spirit that's, that's really expounded on more in the epistles um, seems to refer to the work of, of regenerating and, and causing us to become a new creature. Causing the presence of the Spirit to be interwoven into our lives. So when I, I look at these pictures in the New Testament... 
I find an operation of the Spirit that can touch anybody. I find a regenerative work where the Spirit is interwoven in our lives. And I find something called came upon, fell upon, upon, an epi word. When that happens, it's associated with power. Now, I think all these things take power, but there's a highlighting here that's a little bit unique. That this dynamic is a unique type of power, and it's power for purpose. And, and this, is where, this is where Christianity needs to get into a different category in our minds. Remember we said a couple of weeks ago, words like prayer and faith need context for them to mean something to us. Well, you know, power needs context as well. And we said last week, do I just need faith to get me through the week? I just need faith because, you know, I'm having a hard time. You know, I, I just don't feel good about something. I just need faith to get through. Okay, that, that might be a form of faith. It, it may be a very minimal form of faith. But at another point, a Christian is called to advance the kingdom of God. Not just make it through until Jesus picks us back up and takes us to heaven. But, but violently advance the kingdom of God. That takes a different type of faith. You know, we're talking about wartime faith. We're talking about peacetime faith. Well, that word power as well. We're talking about wartime power. We're talking about peacetime power. We're talking about power to disrupt the activities of principalities and powers in heavenly places. Or are we talking about power just to get up in the morning and go about our business? I'm not trying to denigrate the fact that God's involved with us on a daily basis with, with grace and power in all kinds of realms. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's specific. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. There's power for a particular type of purpose here. Now, I think, I think these guys, after that meeting with Jesus on Sunday night, could have, could have explained the gospel to other people. I think they could have. I think they had seen the scriptures. I think they'd understood the Christ. They'd seen him resurrected. They could tell the story. Now, I, just, I don't believe they needed to wait in Jerusalem to tell the gospel to other people. I just don't think so. I don't think they needed the filling, um, come upon dynamic of the Holy Spirit to quote John 3.16 to somebody else. I think they could tell their testimony without that event taking place in Jerusalem. I was a fisherman. I met Christ. I mean, does anybody here think they couldn't have done that? I mean, they could do this. And, and they had some of the Spirit. And they probably would have had some kind of an impact. But yet, there is this little thing happening here. It's almost like that American Express slogan, remember? You know, the American Express card. Don't leave home without it. There seems to be this dynamic here. You know, the Holy Spirit. Don't do ministry without Him. And there seems to be that communicated by Jesus to his followers. That this dynamic of the Spirit upon your life is critical. And he doesn't treat it as though it's for the elite. He doesn't say, look, you know, there's 120 of y'all in the upper room kind of thing happening here. Just a few of y'all really need this. The rest of y'all just need to be around the few of y'all that have it. It seems to be this is, this is what Christians need to be and need to have going on in their lives. And so he draws attention to this. Now, when does empowerment really become an issue for you and me. What am I really concerned about power beyond my abilities? Usually, not until the task is beyond my abilities. Whatever it was Jesus had in mind for them to accomplish, it was beyond their abilities. Even with the understanding he had opened their minds, they understood the Scriptures. And there was a sense of the presence of the Spirit in their, in their lives. 
And yet, still, this was going to be bigger than that. And, and this, is, this is that restoration element that I want to keep us on track with. Have we downgraded the effect and the purpose of the ministry of the church to such an extent that we kind of don't need to wait in Jerusalem? We, we have knowledge of the word. We have some sense of the presence of God. We'll take it from there. We don't have a sense of, man, I, I need to experience what these guys experienced at the outset of the church. Because it was critical. It was vital. Because the task was much larger than what perhaps we've let it become to us. Go back and get refreshed here. Look, turn back to Matthew chapter 10. Listen to the commission that's given. Right? Here's, here's the, uh, the battleship is about to sail. Right? It's not a cruise ship. It's a battleship. And so there are instructions. There is strategy. There is a divine mission that the people of God are on. So here is tactical information being given out to everybody who's about to, to take off on the mission. They're being briefed before the mission begins. Acts, uh, Matthew Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. He called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Look at verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Now, how many of y'all know if, if that's the orders for you and for me, we might need to break in Jerusalem. That might be a little hard to pull off, huh? We're going to go heal the sick? Because we know the Bible, right? We know the scriptures. Therefore, we have ability to heal the sick. Is that true? No. It wasn't true for the disciples. It's not true for us. The Spirit of God has the ability to heal the sick. I'd best be filled with the Spirit of God if I'm going to go about trying to heal the sick. That's going to be a Spirit-given dynamic and ability that I don't have. So I might need to wait in Jerusalem for that. Look in Mark chapter 16. The Great Commission recorded in the Gospel of Mark describes some dynamics that are going to occur. In verse 15. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, now this, is, this is a description of what the mission sounds like and is to look like. You know, is, is this what the church is doing today? 
we're the church ministers. Is this what the ministry looks like? Or does it look a little different than this? Right? When we check family photo albums here, we look at this one, and we look today at the church. Do they look the same? Do we look like we're pulling off some of these things? See, I, I, I don't believe that the, the church could be found guilty of nothing going on in it. There's lots going on in the church. That doesn't mean we abandon what the Bible told us the church was supposed to look like and be characterized by. And if we're not seeing it, how about it bothering us? Right? You, know, you pull out that picture and you used to fit in that bathing suit. You, know? you pull that thing out and it bothers you. It's like, oh, man. You know, so you do something about it, hopefully. right? I mean, you, um, that's it. I, I'm, I'm going to the gym. I'm going to work out. I'm, you know, something in us grabs us and says... That's, that's the way I'm supposed to look, and you know our own self-interest there promotes that. But what about looking at the church that way and seeing, you know, the, the church used to be a lean, mean fight machine. Now we're fat with our hairlines receding, you know. We're just not in the same shape that we used to be in. Where's the jealousy for the church looking like it used to look? And the only remedy to that is either we've got to move from where we are to get back to where that picture shows us. Or we have to theologically come up with a different idea for church. And today, whether it's intentionally being explained very well or not, we're taking our traditions and what's familiar to us and our practices and we're making them the picture to aim at. You know, you start looking at the book of Acts, you see salvation breaking out like wildfire. Some churches, if they see two people get saved last year, and three get saved this year. Whew, it's revival. <laughs> oh, man, God is visiting us. Three. Three were saved this year. Well, with two were saved last year, you might actually start thinking it's a move of God. But if you pull this photo out from the first century and you look at this photo here, you might conclude differently, huh? You might say fat and bald <laughs> in comparison to what this was. But we, we need some restoration point. We've got to go back to something. The church is supposed to be something. What's it supposed to be? What's it supposed to be in this category as it comes to the, the, the Holy Spirit's activity? Well, right from the beginning, Acts chapter 1 highlights this ministry of the Spirit. So let's, let's go back to Acts. And let's consider something as we read through a few passages here. What if... What if we got saved, and this was some of our experience, not all of it. What if we got saved and we had no previous existing ideas about defining our terminologies, what these things meant. We, we had no sense of expectation. And so we're coming to the Bible and we're reading it and we're saying, whoa, well, Acts. Acts is just telling us what it looked like. Here's, here's what it looked like to be the church. I don't know what it looks like to be the church. I'm, I'm just getting saved. I'm I don't even know. And we come to Acts with no expectations at all. And we're going to form our expectations out of what we see in the book of Acts. How many of us realize we would be radically departing from some of our current ideas? I mean, it's a bit of a refreshing thing. You know, when I got saved, I had a lot of ideas already that were instilled in me about religion that, that had to be wrestled through to overcome them. It's refreshing when, when there's not a lot written in these categories and we just encounter the Word of God. 
and it becomes a defining thing for us. Um, there's a fellow who is attending Alpha that you know, God's just touching this guy's life. Well, he doesn't know the buzzwords. He doesn't know how to describe it. You know, he doesn't even know how to say, you know, I think I got saved. He doesn't know what to call it. He just knows, man, this is great. God is awesome. You know, just kind of, did you get saved? I don't know. Something happened to me, you know. I don't know what vocabulary words to use, but something's going on, you know. It's great to come to the Bible without a sense of, well, I know it's this or it can't be that, and, and it's not that, and it must be this. And you, know, and you and I are ramping up. We're running. Even if we've been in the church for a little while, it's, it could be even worse. Because we start taking our traditions and the way it's always done and the order of service and what we're around and what people do who, quote, experience something in God. And whatever our little pool of experience has been, that starts being the Bible for us. Now, I know we all love to say, well, we preach the Word of God. Come on, man. I know, I know churches who claim they're preaching the Word of God, but they're not seeing what the Word of God says. When it comes to practice, we're preaching what we practice. Here's how we pray for people. Here's how we don't. Here's how we minister to people. Here's how we don't. Anybody cast out any demons lately? I'm serious. I mean, well, it's a modern society. Come on. I mean, that's, you know, that's all Stone Age ideas. Well, I don't know. I don't know what you think. I don't know where, where do the demons go. They took a cruise somewhere. They're off. They'll be back, but they're not here now. They're messing with people's lives. They mess with them then. They're messing with them now. But, but yet... The church is told to cast out demons. But that's a bizarre thing. You go to a church that believes in casting out demons. What? Oh, come on. Man. What are you? It's a strange church. Well, see, when you stop doing something over a long period of time, all of a sudden when you start to do it again, it's weird. That's weird. Well, we're going to preach the word. And if we're going to preach the word, how about practicing it too? I don't really believe in that. There's some folks encountering some issues in their lives that are really more about demonic activity that needs to be handled. He gave authority to them. He gave authority. I mean, there was a sense of, here's my credit card. When you show up in that hotel, you tell them I sent you, and you use this card, and you put it down in front of that guy. Well, you know, in the spirit realm, that's exactly what's happening. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you show up, I don't know who's some big popular guy, you show up in one of Donald Trump's properties, and, you know, you got some special thing from him, some card that, that only, only Donald carries, and you walk in and the receptionist greets you as you walk in to rent a room or something, and you tell him, Donald told me to come today, and you slap his little thing down. Guess what those people are going to do? Man, they're going to roll out the reception to you, right? They're going to recognize the authority, not in you, but in the person who sent you. And Jesus says, I'm giving you authority over the demonic realm. Listen, you know, that, that individual you're dealing with who's demonically being affected may not understand authority, may not know who you are, barely doesn't even know who Jesus is. But you know what the principality behind that person does? When you present Jesus' name and you flash that card and you say, here, here's who sent me. <laughs> hey, pal, they're going to sit up and take notice. But that's a reality that the church is kind of like, oh, that's a great Bible story. Yeah, that, 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 that preach is good. Ooh, we even hoop over it. Ooh, that's right, brother. Come on now. Preach it. But I don't have any intention on casting any demons out when we're done here today. 
Do we? There's people in our lives that are encountering spiritual issues that we're trying to talk them into good behavior. Let me just wear you out with my words here. Let me tell you, well, you know, Freud said, and this guy said, and that guy said, and if you do this long enough, then that and that and that. (laughs) But there's authority. There's ministry that needs the power of the Holy Spirit. See, here's the difference between power and power. (laughs) What's this power for? You know, I don't think Jesus is like, look, you know what, you guys, you're going to have a hard time just getting up in the morning. So wait in Jerusalem so you can be clothed with power from on high. So, you know, when you wake up in the morning, you can put on a smile. <laughs> That's not what he said. So, you know what, get clothed in power because you're going to be taking on spiritual forces. Because you're going to be healing the sick. Because you're going to be facing what sin in its worst moment has wrecked people's lives. But you're coming in my name. I want you coming in power. So you wait in Jerusalem. Don't just go and explain the Bible to people. Even though I've opened the Scriptures up to you, you know what they say. Go in power and explain the Bible to them. Bring both of those ministry dynamics to them. It wasn't as though Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and they really didn't need that. All they needed was power. No, apparently they needed to understand the Scriptures as well. And they needed a sense of the Spirit's presence that they had received. But they needed a coming upon dynamic as well. And when we look in the Scriptures here, let's read together... Some snapshots. We're going we're to walk through some family portraits of when the Holy Spirit came upon people. And we're going to compare our snapshots with this snapshot. And maybe these are better movie clips, I think, the snapshots, actually. This is like, so can you get your, some of you guys aren't old enough to appreciate this, but get your, get your Super 8 film thing out, you know, put the reel on. It's real blurry and stuff, and things are jumping, right? Well, we're going to watch here what happens. Here, here's the first reel. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound, like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Look down in verse 11. Describing the people that were in Jerusalem that day, both Jews, proselytes, Cretans, and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Something happened. Jesus had been pointing to this. He said, wait in Jerusalem. He didn't tell them what exactly was going to happen. He just said, wait. And when, when the Spirit comes upon them, there is a dynamic of occurrence of, a, of an utterance that comes out of them. And they begin to speak in tongues. And there is an exuberance about their lives. They wander out in the street. There's joy in their hearts. Right, this, this promise that they have been told about has come and it sees their lives and they're walking through the streets, but I'm sure, ear-to-ear grins, experiencing the presence and the witness of the power of God with them. And they begin to, they're speaking in other tongues. Right, I mean, you put yourself in their shoes. They're not used to speaking another language they've never heard. But they're speaking another language and they just love it. This is wild, man. Can you imagine, right? It's kind of like a drug trip. Remember when you were, wow, man. 
boy, is this cool or what? They kind of looked like Dean, I bet, walking through the street, you know, wow. And they were speaking in tongues. And the people in the city are watching this happen. There's something occurring here when they were filled with the Spirit. Now, interesting, you know, Peter begins to explain this. He explains what's occurring. He says, this is what Joel prophesied. It's the era in which the Spirit of God will be poured out. And when the Spirit gets poured out, this kind of stuff's going to happen. That's how he explains it. Now, he was told, wait, in Jerusalem, and you're going to be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is going to come upon you. So now, Peter has a definition for this event. Right? Look over in Acts chapter 10. Let me jump ahead with some thought here. Acts chapter 10, Peter finds himself preaching in Cornelius' house. He's just, he's speaking. It's a little gathering that's there. He's proclaiming the gospel. Holy Spirit's with him. Verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Here's that falling upon dynamic. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Now, let me just do something. Receive the Holy Spirit just as we have. What is he referring to when he says receive the Holy Spirit right there? Is he referring to John 20? Receive the Holy Spirit. That's the terminology that was used there. Is that what you think he's referring to? Because in John 20, no one spoke in tongues. There was no extolling of God. They experienced something from God, but that's not what they experienced. He's referring to Acts chapter 2, isn't he? They received the Spirit just like we did in Acts 2. Now, Peter has gone to the Gentiles with this, so there's a little bit of an uproar, and Peter's going to have to give an account. Peter, you were with the Gentiles. You were preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. You were with the unclean. And he has to explain what occurred. And in Acts chapter 11, Peter has come back to give his report of what occurred. Look at verse 16. Actually, verse 15. As I begin to speak, he's telling the story of what we just read. The Holy Spirit fell on them. There's that dynamic again. He fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You see what Peter does here? Peter had an experience in Acts chapter 2 that provided a definition for what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. A few days later, he's baptized with the Holy Spirit and begins to speak in tongues and they walk out in the streets. And then in in Acts chapter 10, he's in the middle of a meeting. The Holy Spirit falls on people. They begin to speak in tongues and and prophesy. And when Peter goes to explain what happened, his explanation is very simple. That's being filled with the Spirit. Now, notice, Peter doesn't run around using that terminology to describe everything. When people got saved, they got convicted of their sin. What must we do? He didn't say, ah, those guys are filled with the Spirit. Look, look, that's, that's filled with the Spirit. He didn't identify that as being filled with the Spirit. He had a definition for what it meant to be filled with the Spirit. And he got it from Jesus and he got it from the experience that Jesus pointed to 
in Acts chapter 2. We see again in Acts 10. And we see again in several other places here. But I want to point something out here because I put an outline in your outline, a quote from a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones who was a pastor and commentator, theologian in England uh, back in the mid to late 1900s. He writes something very interesting here. Listen to what he says about Acts chapter 2 and that event, that day that it took place. This is a phenomena, a spectacle, not something hidden, quiet, or restrained. There's, there's an ebullience, a vitality, a joy, an exuberance, a power. It is here on the very surface. Now, why is that quote so significant to me? Because in, I don't know when exactly, 1960-something, perhaps, when Lloyd-Jones says this. In 1960-something, you have to tell people that when you baptize with the Holy Spirit, it's not hidden. It's observable. It's a demonstration. It's something to be experienced. It's, it's out there. In 1960-something, you've got to tell people that. In the book of Acts, you don't have to tell them that. As soon as Peter sees it, he knows. That's being filled with the Spirit. Peter doesn't run around saying everything is being filled with the Spirit. He says that's being filled with the Spirit. That right there. That's what happened to us. Remember? He experienced that too. Now, see, this is where drift has occurred. We have drifted in our definition of what it means to be baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. When Jesus said, you know, the Spirit's going to come upon you and it's going to be for the purpose of empowering you, to advance the kingdom, uh, wait until it happens. And when it does happen, and we're going to see here throughout the book of Acts, when it does happen, it's observable, it's noticeable, it's experiential. Every time it's mentioned. What we have done today is we have adjusted the idea that, you know, well, you can be filled with the Spirit, uh, and, and no one would know. And you just have to just by faith. You ask God, you just need to just... Believe by faith that, that, that God has filled you with His Spirit. Uh, okay, just, just walk with me here as, as somebody responsible to lead. If you're, put yourself in my shoes. You have to explain things to people. They've had experiences or they haven't had experiences. And you have to give an explanation for it. If I were to say, you didn't experience anything. When you prayed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you didn't experience anything. But God filled you. He did. In that moment, He filled you, and, and you just need to, to trust that He did. You asked, God answered, and you need to trust that He did. Okay. Can, you, can you help me find that in Scripture? Where did I get that from? It's tradition. It's a human tradition. Somewhere along the line... People stopped experiencing things that were biblical. Somewhere in the time frame here. Now, I can't get into church history today. I really wanted to, but I'm going to run out of time. Somewhere in church history, experiences began to slow up and dry up. And when they did, people offered explanations as to why Christianity is in this shape rather than in the shape it used to be in. Why is it taking on this expression rather than the one it used to have? Well, because... And so, through the years... People rehearse these answers over and over and over again. Next thing you know, you get into a modern setting and, well, I didn't experience that. Well, God did. And, and that's why you need Martin Lloyd-Jones coming along and saying, hey, you know what? It's a phenomenon. It's a spectacle. It, it's not something hidden, quiet, or restrained. It's a manifestation. It, it's, it's out there. 
But where does he get that idea? All over the book of Acts. Let's take a quick walk here, and then we're going to be done in just a little bit. Acts 4. Acts 4, verse 29. Here's another prayer meeting. Right? There's a prayer meeting going on in Acts chapter 1 that turns into Acts chapter 2. And the experience that they had of the Holy Spirit is in a prayer meeting. Here's another prayer meeting taking place. There's been issues that have broken out. They're having to call upon God and believe Him for things. Verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, what do you think happened in that meeting? And you remember Peter's demeanor, how he's thinking here. Peter defines the, the receiving of the Spirit this way, the filling of the Spirit a certain way. We, we hear him giving an account of what he understands and Peter doesn't have any preconceived stuff. Peter's not coming out of a Baptist background or a Methodist background. He doesn't have any baggage. He's not walking out of his family kind of was this way. You know, we, we grew up, you know, and, you know, we knew those people on the other side of the tracks and they were kind of, you know, Pentecostal weird and, you know, we didn't do that. He doesn't have any of that. When Peter gets to talking about the Holy Spirit, all he's got is, all I know is Jesus told me, wait in Jerusalem. I waited in Jerusalem and on Pentecost... Holy Spirit showed up, and here's what happened. We spoke in tongues, and there was a move of God, and we knew He was there. Matter of fact, the whole neighborhood knew He was there. That's being filled with the Spirit. So then when He sees it again, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11, filled with the Spirit. See, and so here we have, they were filled with the Spirit. It, it, consistently with the rest of the book of Acts, Filled with the Spirit in this moment was something observable occurred. And they knew. Let's look, continue to look at the passage. Acts chapter 8. This, this passage is critical to understanding some things. Because out of Jerusalem has come a man named Philip who is proclaiming the gospel. He's being used mightily of God. Miracles are taking place. Signs and wonders and, and the receiving of the word of God. So he's preaching Christ. People are getting saved. A bunch of folks get saved in Samaria. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. These are saved individuals. They have received the word. They have believed what Philip has spoken to them. They sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might, quote, receive the Holy Spirit. Same terminology used in Acts 10 and 11. They received the Spirit. Receive the Spirit that way? I don't think so. Receive the Spirit with something observable that accompanied the receiving of the Spirit. They were sent down and prayed for them. Peter and John came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 16. For He had not yet fallen on any of them. There's the upon dynamic of the Spirit. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they're believers who kind of need to wait in Jerusalem for something here. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. 
Now, I don't think they were saved in that moment. I don't even think they received the Holy Spirit. I think if they were regenerated and saved, they already had the Holy Spirit. The term receive the Holy Spirit, as it's used in the book of Acts, has to do with this coming upon dynamic. They received him that way into their lives. Well, how do they know that? Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon saw something, didn't he? Does anybody here believe Peter and John come and and lay their hands upon these people and they pray... And these guys are standing in some form of an altar configuration. They're standing there. Hands are laid on them. And after Peter and John pray, these people turn and they go, thank you. And they go back and they sit in their chair and they sit down. And in the back of the meeting, Simon stands up and goes, I want to be able to do that. I'll pay money to be able to do that. Do what? Place your hands on somebody and have them sit down? That doesn't take any power to do that. Something happened, didn't it? Simon saw something that was just like what the others had experienced. And he knew, wow, something just occurred. Let's keep looking. One more spot here. Acts 19. These are snapshots, right? This is just a quick reel-to-reel. Acts 19, verse 1. Matt, go ahead and come up. When Paul, I'm sorry, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, I'm not sure who these guys were in a salvific fashion before the apostles arrived and clarify some things for them. I don't know. They could have just been eager to pursue God and needed a fuller explanation. But what we do know at this point where I stopped in the text is they have believed and they are now saved. Now look what happens. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Same dynamic again. When you look in the book of Acts and you pull out all the family photos... And you, underneath the little family photo, it says, when the Spirit came upon, when the Spirit came upon, when the Spirit came upon. You find a consistent demonstration of the Spirit in people's lives with observable manifestations accompanying it. Historically, the church moved away from that. And it it required the Pentecostal movement followed by the charismatic movement of 100 plus years ago. To restore, to bring the church back from, yeah, we're we're filled with the Spirit, but it doesn't look like any of that. At some point, God said, well, then let's make it look like that. If you're going to define something, why don't you use the original definition? If you're going to say people are filled with the Spirit, the Spirit came upon them, 
why don't we use this presentation rather than using the one that, well, you know, I grew up and I've seen people have the hands laid upon them and I've, nothing happened to them. So, all right, well, what do we do then? We explain that as, well, you know, you were filled. You just, you know, you just, you know, just trust God. Well, you know, if nothing happens, I want to stand in line and say, okay, God, I'm in line for this. This is what I'm in line for. When I see salvation, I'm in line for this. I don't want human traditions about my salvation. Any of you want that? There's traditional practices today that won't save you. But yet when it comes to other areas where the church needs restoration, we're taking human practices, what's familiar to us, what's happened in somebody else's life, and we're letting that become the norm. And therefore the church is over here when it needs to be over here. And so we're needing a restoration of biblical Concepts. We're needing restoration of dependence on the Holy Spirit to empower our lives in a way that was dynamic and effective and experienced in the New Testament church that many churches today have departed from that way. So this morning, I want us to really ask the Lord to do a work of restoring that, that video film in our midst, in our lives. Now, and again, this is not a hotly debated thing, but it's almost not popular to do anymore either. To pray for people to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And a lot of churches have abandoned stuff like this on Sunday mornings, which is a whole other issue that we'll need to talk about. To where, you know, maybe there's folks here today that, you know, you're, you're not sure about some of these things. You haven't been coming to the church that long. And this, this is... This is stuff that you haven't heard about. Well, none of us get everything instantly. At some point, we get introduced to things. And, and clearly, hopefully you've just seen, I'm just, I'm just reading from the Bible this morning, just giving you references from the Scriptures. And, and if you're investigating Christianity, or if you've just been saved and you're trying to figure out what's this thing supposed to be like, um, you know, if you had been with Peter in Cornelius' house, you'd have been in for an interesting meeting that day. You'd have heard the gospel and the Spirit of God have fallen on you all without notice. <laughs> and next thing you'd have gone from, I hear this, this guy Peter. He's coming to tell us about the Messiah, about how to relate to God. You showed up in that meeting. Next thing you know, you were speaking in tongues and prophesying. I know that wasn't a real seeker-sensitive meeting, but Peter did it anyway. If you're seeking God, be open to God. My greatest concern is for those here that have been Christians for a pretty good time. Have we created a different version than this in this category? We really believe that when, you know, let's, let's cut the knife both ways here. Some of us need to receive from God in this category. Some need to lay their hands on people and give it away. You know, before any of us who have received spiritual gifts, been baptized in the Holy Spirit, we say, well, man, he's kind of not talking to me. No, I am talking to you. In just a moment, I'm going to call on you. Because my question to those of us who have been baptized in the Holy Spirit would be, when was the last time you laid hands on somebody and they looked like this? They spoke in tongues. They prophesied. 
See, we're supposed to, we receive the power for a purpose. Purpose is to give it away. It's to go and replicate it in other people's lives. And so if you're sitting there thinking, boy, wow, when was the last time? Or ever. I've laid my hands on somebody and they began to speak in tongues or prophesy or the Spirit of God got on their life in an observable way. Well, you know, if, if that's not happening at the end of your hands, then you and I are in need of restoration as well. So this is not just for those who haven't yet received. It's for those who need to learn how to minister as well. So let's stand up together. Father, into this place this morning, you have ordained a meeting. Lord, it couldn't be more clear. Lord, the, the way this topic arrived on this date. Lord, it, it wasn't the scheduled preach uh, message to be preached. And someone who normally does not give prophetic utterances has you nagging them to speak about a specific scripture at a specific time in a particular service. Lord, thank you for having our address. <laughs> and you have our attention as well, Lord. So this morning, Lord, we are, we are aware that your, your face is toward us. But we are aware that you are wanting to bless us this morning. You are wanting to impart to us, Lord. We are aware that our desire to be restored pales in comparison with your desire to restore us and to let us experience you the way you have prescribed biblically. So, Father, we want your presence this morning. We want this to be a prayer meeting like the book of Acts. We want it to be a place where you settle in and somebody in the back row is free to experience you this morning. Unannounced, unprepared, but here you come, Lord, and you pour yourself out and people begin to experience your presence. Lord, we want to lay hands on those who want to receive from you this morning. And Lord, we want you to impart to them. Lord, we want to have faith to believe what you said in your word. You still mean. And whether church history has varied from this course or our personal experience has varied from it, there is still a course for us to pursue. And that's what we intend to do this morning. I want to ask you this morning that if you are if you're here this morning and your experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit would not be consistent with what has been read from the book of Acts. Okay, an experiential component where you, you didn't just leave the setting with a sense of, well, I asked the Lord and I trust that He did, but I don't really know that He did, but I trust that He did. If you didn't experience what the Bible describes in the book of Acts, I want to ask you to come this morning and ask again. And that needs to be how we always are. Otherwise, listen, otherwise we become in danger of being the next church that's the next brick in the path on the, on the path to the wrong place. And that's where we are. There's churches behind us. There's experiences behind us that have gotten us where we are. And we've stopped asking for this. We never should have. So let me encourage you. If you've not experienced the Holy Spirit this way, I want you to come down. I want you to get out from your seat right where you are. Invite Invite a work of restoration this morning. In your life, in the church, in our midst. But let us, let us hold high the word of God. 
believing God wants to impart to us this morning. Let Him overcome obstacles. Let Him him, uh, be exceeding of our fears and our questions and our uncertainty. This is simply the Bible. That's all we're doing this morning. We're just saying, Lord, we see pictures from the Bible. We want to look like that. Lord, that's what we want to look like.